in Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11. So in this chapter of Hosea, we encounter uh, a few things. And uh, while I'm saying this, I make sure this is going. Oh, yeah, close. Okay, maybe. There we go. For you note takers. So here we are, Hosea chapter 11. Now, I want you to notice that as we study through the remaining chapters in Hosea, primarily there's a shift in theme. We've talked about the idolatrous nature of Israel, uh, how God equates that to adultery um, and leaving him. And so in this chapter of Hosea, we encounter, we really encounter God, but in a different uh, focus, if I can phrase it that way. The Lord speaks about love and mercy towards Israel through almost all of this chapter and ultimately through the bulk of the remaining chapters of Hosea. So there's a shift in theme. It's been a long time coming. We hear the same thing Sunday after Sunday, and we try to draw applications, and we, we miss sometimes hearing about the mercy and the love of God. And so here we are. We're, we're back to those things. And ultimately, there's some statements of grief, as it were, where the Lord is mourning the imminent chastisement of his children. And that's, his, that's where he's at. That's where we kind of encounter him. Now, for you and I, the challenge uh, is going to be understanding uh, what the Lord is conveying without, and this is, this is the danger. Listen to a few sermons this week, and one of the things that happened that I was really put off by, though I don't know exactly how else to do it differently, was this humanization of the creator of the universe. And ultimately, it's trying to convey the uh, emotion, if I can use that term, the, the desire and the will of God in a way that is understandable. But we have to be careful that we don't understand God in the context of him being like us, because he's not. So I want to sort of introduce uh, this chapter and, and the rest uh, of these chapters in Hosea with that thought. Uh, we may reference the emotion of God or the particular attribute of God that we see most clearly in that particular situation. However, God is not a man and he's not limited by our frailty. He is fully God and he is in God in fullness at every instant. So we want to make sure that we understand that. Let's talk about that for just a moment this morning. God is all of his attributes all of the time. The attributes of God are a means of conveying to mankind uh, who or what God is. And they are individual parts of the mosaic of God. If I can phrase it that way, it's, uh, we, we understand these. But there's some misconceptions that I think the church in general falls into. And I think that for uh, many believers, there's two misconceptions that I want to address. That we would only see... Uh, one attribute at a time, or some understanding that God can only be 
in one attribute at a time. That he can't be uh, all-knowing and limited, so to speak, in his knowledge as Christ was being the incarnate God. All of those are true at the same time. But we tend to focus on one attribute. As I said earlier, we see the one attribute most clearly, but all of them are at play. Secondly, we might emphasize one attribute over another. And I think this is one that the church falls into uh, in a big way. We see the love of God. We see the mercy of God because that's our experience with him. We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but we forget that there is a what, what there is mercy from. We forget in the, the method and the means sometimes of how he sent his son, how that was the expression of his love. And ultimately, we, sometimes we separate that from the characteristics, the other attributes that come to play. So just very briefly, I realize that they're hard to read. It's not. <laughs> but, it, it, and while there may be other lists, here are some of the attributes of God, right? He's incomprehensible. In other words, God is something far above our understanding. He does his best to convey to us. And to be honest, as we walk with the Lord, as we commune in his word and with his spirit, we understand him more and more. But there's going to be some aspect of God being incomprehensible, too big for us to wrap our minds around. Second, he's triune. The Bible reveals God as a trinity, three in one. He's self-existent. He's not dependent upon anything. He's self-sufficient. He's eternal. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and always has been and always will be. He's infinite or without limit. He's immutable or he's unchangeable. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's wise. He's omnipotent, transcendent. Uh, He's not subject to his creation. He transcends. He's over it. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere all at once. He's faithful. He's good. He's justice. He's mercy. He's love. He's grace. He is holy. He is sovereign. All of those being equally true of God at every instant. No one of them being distinct and separate and overcoming or overpowering or restraining one of the others. There may be some discussion or disagreement over any or all of the attributes potentially, uh, but this is how God has revealed himself to mankind. In his word, this is, these are the adjectives, as it were, and the things that we observe in his interaction with people. This is how we understand God. The problem arises from mankind's imposition. We impose upon God a desire for him to be certain things. We tend to like the fact that that God is faithful. And why wouldn't we like the fact that God is faithful? That is part part of the appeal in some respects. But sometimes we would like to separate some of these others, that God is sovereign. Because if God is sovereign, that means that I am subject to his sovereign reign. Whether I believe in him, whether I trust in him or not, it still remains the same that he is sovereign. So we have to understand God in his fullness. We have to understand that God in the fullness of his word, as we've been studying through Hosea, we encounter him talking about 
judgment, chastisement, correction, yet every one of these attributes remains fully in play. Now, I'll tell you that I think these few here, oh, it's funny, kind of shifted there, but these four, justice, mercy, grace, and love, I think are the ones that the church at large, at least in Western culture, struggle with the most. These are the ones that we overemphasize or that we want to overlook and, and have mercy override justice all the time. Or that love and grace would override anything else. That there is a struggle in our hearts and minds to bring those into unity. Now, there is a balance to be struck. Obviously, we understand that in the Word of God, when it comes to justice, as we studied through the book of Romans, you'll remember that God, who wanted to be just, remain just, he was not going to deny the attribute of his justice and the character that he is just, but he also wanted to be the justifier. He wanted to be in relationship. He wanted to extend mercy. So justice had to be had, and in Jesus Christ, he fully paid the penalty so that justice is satisfied. And as a result of justice being satisfied, he could deal with you and I in mercy. All of his attributes at play in the same instant. And we take the same thought and we understand that God in his justice and in his mercy and his relationship with you and I, that he's not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. That you and I, even though we're eternally forgiven for our sins, there may be some consequence for the things that we choose to do. And that's where we kind of encounter Israel. That God loves them, as, we, as we're going to look at this morning, God has spent time showing them mercy and love and really conveying those things that we like to focus on about the Lord. But he has to remain just, that he is just in all of these things. We tend to comprehend them, these particular mercy, grace, and love, maybe even God's holiness, maybe his sovereignty, maybe his transcendence. We, we try to, as I said, the, the risk this morning is that we, take God off his throne, and we put him in the same category, we're in the same level of understanding as the rest of his creation. As we study through this chapter, and really as we study through any of the Bible, we have to understand that this is God and all of his attributes are at play. And if we overemphasize one, if we separate his attributes, who God is, from his word as he's revealed it, we've misinterpreted that. We're misunderstanding what God is conveying to us. Well, there may be times, obviously, where he may try to convey a particular aspect that he may be, in fact, trying to instruct us in an, in an attribute or illustrate or highlight one for our benefit. But the question I would suggest that you ask is, how are the other attributes of God balanced in this? Because I, there will be an answer. God is all of these all of the time. Now, verse 1 of Hosea chapter 11, he says, When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. God uses the familial, the, the family illustration. 
He calls Israel his child. And that's good for us to understand that he's dealing with them as his children. Now, in John chapter 1, if you'll turn there, John chapter 1. Verses 12 and 13. Now, this is speaking about the deity of Jesus Christ, his incarnation. It's speaking about his, uh, the faith that is required and always has been unto salvation. He says, but as many as received him, because Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not. We read that in the previous verse. We also read that in the book of Isaiah. But here it is, as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now in this, I want to I take these verses just briefly in reverse order. Verse 13, they are born. Jesus said in John, 3, 6, or John chapter 3 that we have to be born again. That we're born after the flesh and we have to be born after the spirit. So in some sense, there is a reference to that concept, but we're not born of blood, so it's not a physical birth, nor of the will of the flesh. In other words, there is nothing that you and I within our flesh could muster up that would be good enough. Our righteousness, the best that we can do, as we read in the Old Testament, is as filthy rags. They might be good things, and we have all encountered good people. We would look at them and say, they're good people but they don't know Jesus. They have not trusted in him. They have not believed on him and therefore been brought into the family of God. Their own efforts don't bring them into that relationship. Nor the will of man. We don't determine whether our children enter into heaven or not. We don't will that. We would desire, we would hope that that would be the case, but ultimately it is their faith in the same Savior that we have that brings him in through the adoption of sons. This is something that is birthed, that it says, but of God, something that he does completely in and for us. And how do we receive that? Well, we find that in the previous verse, in verse 12, as, as many as received him. In other words, we accept by faith that this is what has happened that Jesus Christ was that substitute. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more as we progress, as we close this morning. To them gave he the power to become the sons of God, to be adopted, as we read in the book of Romans, into that family. And we're given that spirit, the Holy Spirit, as the earnest, the, the, forward, the looking forward to of everything that we're going to receive in heaven, in that eternal state. The spirit of adoption, whereby we can cry, Abba, Father. Because apart from Jesus Christ, we're enemies. And we're brought into the family, we're adopted, we're brought in and given that special relationship. And this is the relationship that God uses to illustrate to you and I what salvation looks like. That it's being brought back into that right relationship. Now, I want to talk about a perfect father because that is what God is for you and I. He is a perfect father. And the deception that we would be encountering is that somehow our father in this world would represent our father in heaven. 
Well, and while there may be some illustration there, we have to understand that your dad, as good as he may be, whoever he may be, is still a man who is corrupted by sin. That my children have an imperfect illustration of what that relationship with God the Father looks like in me. And I've had discussions with people where this has been a, a point of contention because they see this familiar illustration and they see that I, I don't want to enter into that relationship because my father was abusive or my father, whatever the case may be, but he inaccurately and poorly reflected that relationship. So there was no desire to enter into that. Now, I don't know the way that I countered it in those particular conversations was that the very desire, the, the lack of desire that you have for that should illustrate the fact to you that there is something far better within that relationship. And that's what God has offered. He's a perfect father. We don't interpret the fatherhood of God through the light of our experience. He's not a sin-corrupted man. He's the perfect father, and he always knows what to do. I mean, have you ever been there as a parent, and you, you, something has to be done, and sometimes you scratch your head. I mean, parents, let's we're honest. Kids, you're muffs, right? We, sometimes we don't know what to do. Sometimes we don't know exactly what it should look like. Sometimes we don't know how we should correct or how we should instruct that thing. And those are areas where we have to trust the Lord, and we do our best. And we're going to stumble through it. And, you know, we're going to probably stumble through it more than once. Because if it's something that we kind of poorly did, we're going to encounter it again. But God, who is perfect, always knows exactly what to do. He's never going to give you up. He's never going to let you down. And he's never going to desert you. To quote Rick Astley. Just, you know. And if we take the time to look, right, we find the same principles in Scripture. That he's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. That he's always going to be there. That in time of trouble, we can come directly into the throne in his grace to receive mercy. This is what the world is looking for. Why is the song like this so popular? Well, it's because there is a desire for that reliability in a relationship. And we only find that in God. As intimate as any relationship we may have within marriage, within friends, within, parent, within parents or families, it is imperfect. But the relationship that we have with God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, and only through Jesus Christ, is perfect. And I'll just submit to you that any problem within that relationship is us. And it's our resistance to what God is doing in us and through us. So we have this perfect relationship with God. This is the illustration that he uses, this family relationship, child-father relationship to illustrate his interaction with Israel, to illustrate his interaction with you and I. We also find, as we study through the Word of God, that this relationship was instituted, excuse me, initiated by God himself. 
that this isn't something that man has ultimately chosen. In Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, God, who remember at the, mo at the moment that he decided to say these words, to record them for our benefit, knew everything that was going to happen. He knew that when he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish and over the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over all the creeping things that creeps upon the earth. And in verse 27, and God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. At the moment that God recorded that, even before, as in the beginning, in verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. He knew exactly what was going to happen. It was no surprise to God that when he put the choice before Adam and Eve, that they chose sin and not him. Omniscience is still there. His transcendence is still there. All of his attributes are still there. And what tends to balance those and his self-sufficiency, God didn't have to make something to, to somehow exhibit creativity. He is self-sufficient. He didn't need an outlet for his love or something like that. that would, he wouldn't be sufficient. He would have to have man. The only answer that I can think of, that I can conceive of, and it may not be the correct one, is that God loved people. He didn't need us. He didn't need to express love in that way, but he loved us enough because it is an omniscience. He knew us before he created us, which is a startling revelation to some of us, right? That he knew us before he loved us or before he created us. Now, that doesn't mean, and don't interpret that to mean in any way, shape, or form that somehow we existed before this life. That is not the way that that is. That works. We're, com we're counting completely on an understanding of God and who he is. For whatever the reason, whether it's my reason or some other reason, God chose to create everything that we find. And in so doing, specially set man apart in his creation and established a relationship with him. Which man immediately, as far as I can tell, very shortly after creation, ruined. One thing, don't eat of this tree, the, the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden, don't eat of that. And almost immediately, there they go. We had a discussion about this, I think, at Thanksgiving. We determined, and the best of our ability, and there were some extremely good points made, but I think what we can certainly say is it with less than nine months, and perhaps probably even less than that, because there's no children in the Garden of Eden, right? We don't have any. Anyway, we, we had some discussion about this. All I'm getting at is a short amount of time. And man chose to reject God. Now, this is man choosing to re reject God, even though they walk with him in the cool of day. There is an interaction with him that we don't have the same today. And they still chose to reject him. They still chose sin. And that plunged man into a difficult circumstance that we are all sinners. That's where, we, that's where we exist. But here it is, God pursuing man throughout the rest of history because we have the first three chapters, we have creation and we have the fall, and the rest of the Bible is all about God's plan and purpose to redeem mankind. The rest of the Bible, all of it is about God's purpose and plan to redeem mankind. 
that he would convey to you and I who he is, his desire to be in relationship with us, that he would convey to us his pursuit of us, the way that he has made himself known so that none are without excuse, and how that in the end, there is reward for his people. In Genesis chapter 12, if you'll turn there with me, Genesis 12, I want to look specifically at the institution of this relationship with Israel. Because it doesn't begin with a people group, it begins with a single family that God chose. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, And the Lord said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curses thee, and in thee all families of the earth shall be blessed. And we look at this and we understand that from Abraham comes the nation of Israel. He is the progenitor, the first father, as it were, of the nation of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had the 12 sons that ultimately lead to the 12 tribes, except for Joseph, who and his two sons, right, it's split. We understand all that from Genesis chapter about 48 through the end. But this is where they came from. This is where God initially singles Abraham out and calls him out and says, you're going to be the one that I establish my covenant with. You're going to be the father of my example people. And all these references to the earth being blessed ultimately result in Jesus Christ being the blessing to mankind. The fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 where God said right after the fall, listen, the serpent is going to bruise the heel of the child, uh, of the offspring of the woman, but he will crush the head of the serpent. The proto-evangelion, that first utterance and promise of a redeemer. That's what these promises are all about. It's a consistent thread throughout all of Scripture. Now, this is Israel. That is his people. Ultimately, as we look through here, I think we get into Genesis 15, and I might, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll come back to it. The same relationship exists for you and I in the church. I don't misunderstand. The church doesn't replace Israel. We've talked about this. We, we, we've discussed it as we studied through Romans. We discussed it multiple times. But ultimately, we understand that there is one people of God, those who are in faith of Jesus Christ, whether they came before Christ or whether they came after Christ. Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. Our faith is counted to us as righteousness. One looking forward to the redemption found in the de promised deliverer. One looking back on the fulfillment of that promise in Jesus Christ. But it's still by faith. In Hebrews chapter 12, if you'll turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 12, right on the heels of Hebrews 11, where we read about the faith of Abraham. We read about those who are looking forward to, as examples, all that God has promised to fulfill. Hebrews 12, verse 2, says that we look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I just want to focus on this morning, the author portion. We're talking about this 
relationship initiated by God. Jesus is the author. He's the initiator. He's the original institutor. That's a terrible phrase. He's the author. He established this relationship with us. God did in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, and it was lost. And in Jesus Christ, he reestablishes, he opens, as it were, the lines of communication in his son, Jesus Christ. He initiates it by that expression of love found on the cross. In Romans 5.8, it says that while we were yet sinners, that God who wanted to commend, he wanted to show us his love, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say, I'm going to wait for all of these people to get their act together. He didn't say, I'm going to somehow withhold something from them. No, it was an unconditional act without any reciprocation, without any looking forward to God sent his son, Jesus Christ, while we were yet sinners. He initiated the relationship with you and I. He provided the mechanism and the means for us to engage in that relationship with him. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. In other words, he is the only access. He is the door, just as the ark had one door and was illustrative of, the, of a redemptive act of God. There is one way into relationship with God the Father. One way to be adopted as one of his children through Jesus Christ. God talks about calling his child. He says, I, I'm going to call my son out of Egypt. Now, his child is in a strange land. Israel was given a land. Abraham was promised, wherever your foot treads, that's going to be yours. We call it the promised land because it's the land that God promised Abraham. And it was full of people. There are all kinds of people there. And there were all kinds of sin happening and, and immorality and all kinds of things happening there. And in many respects, God used the nation of Israel as a corrective hand to those people. We understand that his promise isn't simply to Israel. His promises were to all of mankind. Even those Gentiles, even the Assyrians and the Hittites and the other ites that were in the land. I can only remember the Hittites at this moment. But God was using them as a hand of correction. But his child was in this strange land. Ultimately, in Genesis chapter 15, if you turn there, Genesis 15, as God institutes, they actually execute a covenant, Abraham and the Lord. Genesis 15. And they go through this process, and we read it, and it sounds really horrible. Because God says, Abraham, I want you to take all of these animals, and I want you to split them down the middle. And when he says split them down the middle, he, he literally means split them down the middle. And you lay half over here and half over here. And they meet in the middle of all of this mess. And that's where the Institute Covenant. And so God tells Abraham to do all of this. He commands him to, and Abraham does it just as God says. He prepares all of the animals. He gets everything ready. And then he waits. And he waits. And he waits. And he ends up falling asleep. And that's by God's design. And when the Lord shows up to execute this covenant with him, rather than meet in the middle, what does God do? It says that very specifically that he passes all the way through. In other words, God says, I'm going to execute this covenant with you, Abraham, but it's on me. I'm the initiator of this covenant. 
I'm the fulfiller of this covenant. Abraham had to believe. He had to trust the Lord, just as we have to trust God in Jesus Christ. But there's no other effort, no other work for us to add to it. But look with me in Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14. And he said, Abraham, this is before it was Abraham, right? He gets that name a little later. Abraham, know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. Abraham, your people are going to go. Your descendants are going to go into bondage. Continues on. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. We remember the story of Joseph, right? Jacob had these sons. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Yes, go through the, make sure I'm getting the right, right patriarch. Jacob had these sons, and they didn't like Joseph because he was a favorite. He had the coat of many colors. They threw him in the pit. They sold him to the Ishmaelites. He ended up as a prisoner, a slave in Egypt. And ultimately, we understand that because there was this famine that was going to come, and Joseph interpreted that dream, that Pharaoh established him to be a deliverer of his people. And they stored up for seven years. There were seven years of famine, and his family comes into Egypt. Ultimately, he reveals himself to them, and they stay there. And you know how long they stayed there? 400 years, just like it said. 400 years. And then God sends another man, Moses, to lead his people out. He calls his son out of this strange land. They were called out. Exodus chapter 4, if you'll turn there with me. Exodus chapter 4. Verse 22, and thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And what does he say? Love my people go. Turn them loose. It's time. Israel is my son. And he calls him out of this land. Now, there's some prophetic interpretation of this passage. We need to understand that. That there is more, as we introduce the book of Hosea, we talked about this gospel thread all throughout that, th this book. And I want to highlight a particular aspect of it here in Matthew chapter 2. We'll remember that God said, hey, I'm going to call my people out. I'm going to call my son out of a strange land. In Matthew chapter 2, Verses 14 and 15. Joseph and Mary, who have just uh, birthed Jesus Christ, are wakened by, the, by, the, by an angel and told to get out of here. Herod's looking for you. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and they departed into Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. The prophet that's being referenced is the prophet Hosea. This very passage that we're reading this morning, saying, out of Egypt have I called my son. He called Israel his son and very specifically called them out of Egypt. He calls Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, out of Egypt. All throughout Scripture, 
Egypt in, is this picture of the world. We're going to talk about that a little bit more next week. But for you and I who are in Jesus Christ, we've been called out of the world. We've been called out of it. And we've been adopted into the family of God. Once again, God has called his sons out of Egypt. In Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews 11, verse 13. It's speaking of Noah and Cain and Abel, all of these, even Abraham. It says, these all died in faith. They died trusting, looking forward to the redemption that was promised by God. Not having received the promises, it said. They, they didn't live until they were completely fulfilled, but they trusted that God would. The God who is faithful, the God who is omnipotent, the God who is sovereign is able to bring all of his attributes to bear upon the history of all of mankind and fulfill that which he has desired, to redeem mankind. It says they had seen them afar off and were persuaded of them. We see the word persuaded and it means that we're somehow convinced, you know, whether we may have doubt or not, I'm going to sort of submit to this. That's not what the word means. Persuaded means there is an absolute certainty. They had no question in their mind that this is what God was going to do. For them, if God said it, it was as good as done. They were persuaded of them and they embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. As we study through the rest of the New Testament, we kind of get an idea that God's people, you and I, the church, that we're also strangers and pilgrims, that our citizenship lies somewhere else. The Bible tells us that our life is hid with Christ in the heavenlies. That if God, just as for these, had said, listen, I'm going to redeem you, I'm going to send my son, and I'm going to call him out of Egypt, what he says to you and I, I'm declaring you righteous. I am justifying you. But that's the reality. That we are, in fact, in God's eyes, we are righteous. That when he looks at you and in me and Jesus Christ, he doesn't see our own righteousness because that's like those filthy rags we talked about. He sees us clothed, covered in the righteousness of Christ. This is the child this is the relationship, this is the desire that God has for his people Israel. And if we take that application and we compare it to the church while we don't replace it, God's will for his people is the same. That he would redeem us, that he would call us out of Egypt, that he would give us those blessings that, are, that he has made, that he had promised to us. In verse 2, he says, as they called them, so they went from him. They sacrificed unto Balaam and burned incense to graven images. Now, we have this stubborn child. Right here is Israel. They're a stubborn child. Keeping in the same picture and the same illustration that God is using, as he called them, so they went from him. In other words, the more that God called Israel, the more they ran from him. We've all seen this, right? Little kids, whether it's at the playground, they're engaged in something, or maybe I'm going to stick with little kids. I was going to say dogs, but I didn't want to compare the two because kids are not dogs. 
sometimes they behave the same, right? But here they are. They're engaged in this other thing. This other thing looks far more desirable. It looks better. And so we call the child, you know, come on, it's time to go. And they might even throw a fit. They might lay down on the ground. They might, whatever it takes to not do. And that's exactly the idea that's being, as they call them, the more that I called my son, the more they fought me, the more they pursued other things. When God called the nation of Israel, when he led them out of Egypt, when he led them out of this bondage, I called my son out of Egypt. He led them by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. It was obvious where they were supposed to go. I mean, here, here's the pillar of cloud. It's going this way. We just follow it. And at night, we just follow the pillar. Wherever it goes, that's where we go. When it stops, we stop. When it moves, we move. It was easy. It was simple. It was very, very intentional. God was very clearly trying to give in a picture, this is where we need to go. Here's the problem, though. Despite the clear leading, they didn't always follow. Despite the clear leading, they didn't always follow. God, throughout his interaction with the nation of Israel, didn't cease to lead them when the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud disappeared. He didn't cease to lead them. He just led them other ways, and it was still very clear and still very direct. But despite that, they chose to ignore it. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 29. Let's look at an example. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 2 through 4. You shall offer a burnt offering for a sweet savor unto the Lord, one young bullock, one ram, and seven lambs of the year. It's obviously not this passage. Listen. Oh, I'm not. Oh, I'm in Numbers 29. Thank you. <laughs> you know, one of these days, one of these days, Deuteronomy 20. Thanks, guys. I need all the help I can get. Deuteronomy 29, verse 2, for the second time. And Moses called unto all Israel and said unto them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt unto Pharaoh and unto all his servants and unto all his land. Here we see the faithfulness of God. He's referring to the plagues that were sent into Egypt so that Pharaoh would let the Hebrews go. They saw the hand of God. They saw the miracles. They saw the thing. They saw the water turned to blood. They saw the frogs. They saw the flies. They saw the taking of the firstborn unless they observe the Passover. They saw the fulfillment of the prophecy and the covenant that God made with Abraham. That they'd be delivered and they would leave with great wealth as they're leaving and everybody just gives them their gold and their treasure. So much so that Egypt has more than once sought reparations from Israel. Listen, you got to pay us back. In modern times, not that long ago. Continuing on in Deuteronomy 29, the great temptations which thine eyes have seen, the signs and those great miracles. Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear unto this day. I have led you 40 years 
in the wilderness. Your clothes have not waxed old upon you, and your shoe is not waxed old upon thy foot, so on and so forth. I provided for your need, food, water, meat, all of the above. Ultimately, what God is saying, he's, he's not saying that I didn't give you this. He says, but you didn't perceive. You didn't understand all the ways that I was leading you all the ways that I was providing for you, all the faithfulnesses that I've shown you, all the miracles and all the witnesses of all that I am to you, you've completely overlooked. You've ignored. Now, for you and I, we sit here and we look and we're thinking, I mean, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. He gives me food. It just shows up. I'm in the wilderness for you. Not only that, but he takes us right to the land. They choose not to, to listen. So they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. But we see God taking care of everything, so much so that their clothes don't wear out. And we're thinking to ourselves, if I had those kinds of clear signs, I would easily know exactly what God wanted me to do all the time. It would seem obvious. In 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 17, 2 Kings 17, God led his people through these miracles. He led his people by the calling of specific people like Moses. Ultimately, as we get into the book of Kings, we, we know that Israel desired a king. In, the, in 2 Samuel, we read about God, and we've, taught, we've referenced this recently through our study in Hosea. They rejected God as their ruler, as their sovereign, and they wanted to be like the other nations. The grass looked greener on the other side. We don't want God to rule over us. We want to have it. We, we want a king to fight our battles, all of these things. And God submitted to that. To humanize him to a God didn't submit to anything. God allowed it as an illustration and according to his plan and purpose. In 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 13 through 15, yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all the prophets and by all the seers saying, turn you from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law, which I commanded your fathers, which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets, notwithstanding. Right, just before we talk about the notwithstanding part, here is God sending his people. Not only that, but just remember that he's sending his prophets to a people that he's clearly explained. This is what a prophet is. And this is what they do. Deuteronomy 18, they're only going to speak when I tell them to speak, and it will always be true. And if it's not always true, or if they speak presumptuously on their own, they're a false prophet. You put them to death. You stone them. So here they are. They know exactly what a prophet is. Not only that, but God confirms his prophets by these miracles, and that's often how he confirms himself. I think of Elijah in particular up on Mount Baal excuse me, on Mount Carmel, as he has this showdown with the prophets of Baal. And what is Elijah's simple prayer? So that they may know that there is a God in heaven. And God sends down fire, the entire offering, the altar, and even the stones and the ground are burned. Do you think there was any question in their minds that who has the real and legitimate God? We'd think no, but there certainly was. Notwithstanding, he says, notwithstanding, they would not hear. 
They didn't listen. Here is God calling them, correcting them, using his spokespeople, the prophets, yet they would not hear. They hardened their necks like to the necks of their fathers. In other words, this has been the history of Israel, their hard-heartedness, their undesire to follow me that did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenants that he made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he testified against them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the heathen who were around whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. And this is where we find Israel and Hosea. This is why, because they won't listen to the prophets, because they've gone after these strange gods, because they're worshiping these idols just like the nations that were there before them. They were stubborn. The more God called them, the more they rejected him. Now, for you and I, I want to make an application to this because we have uh, something different. The Bible would say of itself, listen, we have a more sure word of prophecy. In other words, we have a complete revelation of God. He says, it's done. Everything that you need to know is recorded for you right here. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, just write this one down in your notes. Let me read it to you. God, who at sundry times in a diverse manner spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. That's how he used to convey his will to the people. That's how he used to speak correction to them. That's how he interacted with them. He spoke to them by the prophets. Jesus gave parables, he says, and he talks about... Uh, a man owning property, and he would let it out, and they were supposed to bring their, they would send his representatives to collect what was rightfully his from the harvest, and they would kill them. And ultimately, he says, I'm going to send my son. They'll reverence my son. They'll respect him because he's my son. And what do they do? They kill him. All of that being a picture of what Jesus Christ came and did, God's interaction with these people. And Jesus said, what is, what, what is he going to do? He says, well, they're going to remove that. He's going to put somebody else in there who will give due respect. That was Israel. God used to speak by the prophets. In verse 2, he says, he has in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. God has spoken to us by his son. The revelation of God is complete and fulfilled in his word. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1.1. 1, 1. For you and I, we think that, it, that it, we look back on Israel and we see all these miracles, we see all these things, and if it was that cut and dry, I would easily walk in the ways of the Lord. Yet here it is recorded for us in the Word of God in language that we understand. It's clear, cut, and dry, and how easily do we not walk in the ways of the Lord? There's very little difference. God has revealed himself to us. God has given us everything that is necessary. And we choose to reject it. We don't need new revelation. We don't need to, we need to be understanding what God has said in his word. Hosea 11, verse 3. He says, I taught Ephraim. I taught Ephraim also to go 
taking them by the arms, but they knew not that I healed them. That word to go, that simply means that God taught Ephraim to walk. Now, Ephraim is representative of all of Israel, the entire nation. It's the nice place. It's, the, it's sort of the, the higher end, but, but that's what he's using. He's using that to reference all of Israel. God says, I taught my people to walk. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3 for just a moment. Romans chapter 3. In many respects, the way that God taught his people to walk is no different than he teaches you and I as believers to walk. He did so with his word there at Mount Sinai, for instance, as he was about to execute this covenant with the nation of Israel. He says, listen, I'll give you my commands and you keep them and I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And then they wrote down, this is exactly what I want you to do. And they recorded by Moses and that process of revelation, all of the interactions that God wanted to have with them. This is how you worship me. This is how the Levites are to operate. This is all of those things. He recorded it. He wrote it down. He gave us his word so that we might follow him. He taught us how to walk. In Romans chapter 3, what advantage then has the Jew or what profit is there of circumcision? Obviously, there's some context that we would want to unpack there, but but Paul has just been discussing how all of those religious rites are useless for righteousness. They were just illustrative. So then if that's the case, what benefit is there in being a Jew and, and having received those things? And he answers the question much every way, chiefly, primarily, the biggest reason that there is advantage in being a Jew, because unto them was committed the oracles of God. In other words, unto them was committed the Bible, the, the word of God. It wasn't finished till Paul and the other apostles were inspired by God to record what they recorded, but they had the word of God. They were being taught how to walk, exactly what to do. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Just because Israel would reject God, just because they would go after their idols and those things, doesn't mean that it wasn't right and correct. God forbid, he says, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. God taught the nation of Israel to walk just in the same way that he teaches you and I to walk, by his word. As sincere, as, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of what? Of the word. That which gives us strength, that which builds us up, that which gives us the ability to stand on our own two feet. And we continue on, and he, God actually, in Scripture, in the New Testament, confronts those who stayed right there. They never took anything more than just the milk. They didn't dive into the Word of God to see what it said and how they might apply it and, and study to show themselves approved, rightly dividing the Word of God. He says, you have need that someone still teaches you in Hebrews 10, I believe. He says it in more than one place, but that's one that I, can, I think I remember. Look it up and quote me. Let me know next week. He teaches us to walk by his word. He says that he took Israel by the arm, and we think that's kind of weird, but that it simply just means by the hand. He takes them by the hand, just like this picture here illustrates. You have a parent 
This little child learning to walk, they take them by the hand, they hold them up so they don't fall. There's some support given there. He can understand that they are with him. This, this child understands that his parents are with him, that they're supporting him, and that they will walk with him as he learns to walk. We've all been there. When you, when you have a little baby, and you, especially your first child, because I, I guess because you have the time for this, I don't know. But you sit there, you know, six, eight feet apart, and you kind of hold the child out and let it go. And it takes two steps, and the other parent catches it, and you turn around, and you just repeat. Teaching this child to walk, there's never this, there's always this security of mom and dad catching that child. This is the nature of the relationship that God has with Israel and with his people in the church. He's right there with us. He takes us by the hand and says, but they knew not that I healed them, that I was helping them. We've also all been there where you take the child by the hand, it's time to go. And rather than walk side by side with you, trusting that we're going where we need to go at the time that we need to go there, a child is going to throw themselves on the ground and you're going to have to drag them. Just the way that it is. I'm, little kids get hurt doing these kinds of things. Little kids throw fits as a result of not wanting to follow and not trusting that their parents are watching out for their best interest. Yet that's exactly the illustration that God uses. This child could fight against their parents. Uh, they, they could support and stumble on their, their own. That was Israel. They knew not that God healed them. And if we're honest, sometimes that's us. Sometimes I'm like the little kid who's, who's holding the Lord's hand. We're clearly his. But I don't want to go that way. I don't want to do that thing. I don't want to walk in obedience. I don't want to accept the truth of God's word as good and plain and true as it is because it means things that I don't want it to mean. Yet here it is, and God in his faithfulness is not going to give up on us. He's not going to let us go. He says of Israel, I drew them in verse 4, I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of love, and I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws, and I laid meat unto them. Now when we talk about cords of a man, it means one of three things. It means a rope, just, just like you would think, a rope. It means a measuring line or it means pain or travail. And I honestly think that all three are pertinent in this particular instance. And what I mean is that there are some things that God is simply going to remove from us. He's going to restrain us from them altogether. Like the rope, he's going to, to bind us, as it were, from that thing. And then there's also the measuring line where he's going to clearly establish the standard. This is the standard, and we choose to walk in obedience to it or not. When in regard to salvation, God has said, listen, the standard is my righteousness. Not your righteousness, my righteousness. Or pain and travail. Hardship. Which has been his interaction and all of these things leading up to through the book of Hosea. This is chastisement. This is correction. And as we've studied through this, we understand that it, from, from Hebrews 12, this is an expression of God's love to us. So God uses everything to bring them to himself and to instruct them. 
He's reaching out to his people. I want you to consider Israel's uh, history in light of their interaction with God as his children. Okay. He, he says, listen, in the very beginning, he initiated that covenant. I created them. And then he called them in Abraham, like we talked about. He grew them. He protected them. He put them into Egypt so that they might grow and become a nation. He taught them his ways. He revealed them to him beginning at Sinai, but ultimately throughout all of, all of history as he has placed them in our heart and in our conscience so that we have no excuse. He delivered them from Egypt. And ultimately, if you read through the book of Judges or any other historical book in Scripture, he delivered them multiple times. He provided for them. He maintained them. And ultimately, God will redeem them. All throughout their history, here is Israel, and there is this interaction that they have with God. And he is like a parent who is interacting with this child, and, and there are times when he has to restrain the child. There are times when he has to just set the standard. And there are times when they're going to reap what they sow, and there will be a consequence for not keeping the standard. We see this process and we understand it in light of our raising our own children, our own families. We see the growth and the process that God has put in place. And Israel is rejecting of that. Now, he talks about the bands of love. With bands of love, and I was to them as if they take off the yoke. Now, this bands of love, that's a different word. Right? It's a different concept. It's not like the, the cords and the rope, those things, that's a lot like the lasso that you're going to throw over your cow and the fight is on and there's some wrangling happening. But here's the thing, right? You could easily, if you started at a very young age, you could train the same animal to behave differently. And that's God's goal for you and I. Through this process of training, we grow up to, to, to the point where we would walk with him willingly. And that's what this bands of love, it's the different, it has nothing to do with wrangling, it has everything to do with a simple leading. There used to be a practice in the 17th and the 18th century in Europe, and they called them leading strings. And you use them when you're teaching your child to walk. And the little kid held on to one end and you held on to the other. And all it was is so that you can go out and you can enjoy the the, the walk that you were about to take or wherever you're going to go. And, and the child would walk holding on the other. They couldn't get too far away. Right? Today, we do it a little bit differently. We don't trust the child to hold on. We just put a leash on them and they can't get away, right? That's the first. That's the cords that God is using. But there's a time period where that is applicable. And there may be seasons of our life where we're in and out of those cords, so to speak. But ultimately, what God wants to do is just have us hold on in trust, in faith, and walk side by side with him in obedience. And so you train the child that they hold on to that and they don't let go of it, and they stay in constant contact and communion with the parent through that. Leading strings. That's the same principle. It's the same idea that's being conveyed in this bands of love. 
He says that he's going to be one who removes the yoke of their jaws, and, and I have laid me, I provided for them. In Leviticus chapter 26, if you'll turn there with me, Leviticus 26. <clears throat> Verse 13, God says to his people, I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their bondmen. And I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you go upright. So here they are delivered out of that. And, and I want to keep with that by, by way of application as we close this morning. That illustration of Egypt being representative of the world. Because here is God, and he's called us out of the world, and he's taken the yoke of bondage off of us in the sense that we no longer have to maintain righteousness to somehow be agreeable to him. Because if we study through the, the scripture, we understand that that's impossible. There is none righteous, no, not one. And God says, I'm going to remove that burden from you, and I'm going to give you everything necessary in my son, Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we, uh, we turn here often because this is illustrative for you and I of this exchange of righteousness, of this atonement principle. It says, speaking of Jesus Christ, for he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In other words, God in Jesus Christ said, I'm going to execute all the wrath that I have for all of sin, for all of mankind, for all of time. And in so doing, there's an exchange that happens, and that, that, that's what the word atonement means, this exchange. I'm going to trade, if we enter in by faith, we enter in the family of God, I'm going to trade your righteousness, those filthy rags, and they're going to be laid on Jesus Christ, who's already paid the penalty for him, and I'm going to give you his righteousness. And it's interesting for us to understand completely and fully that Jesus Christ is God. When he says the righteousness that is demanded, the standard that I have established is my righteousness, that's literally what he gives us. That's literally the standard of righteousness he covers us with so that he can be just and the justifier. In Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, verse 10. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? Here they're interacting, and there are those who are talking about circumcision and these requirements in addition to Jesus Christ and faith in him alone. These works of righteousness. And he says, that's a yoke of bondage. Why would you tempt God? Why would we want to go back into that yoke? We couldn't keep it as a people. Our fathers couldn't keep it as a people. Why would we bind that on them? And the determination is made, and God codifies and records in his word. Yeah, there is no, none of that is applicable. Jesus Christ has taken it all. Now, you and I, who are in Christ, we understand that there is some reciprocation of love, that if we're going to love Christ, as the Bible, as Jesus himself said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That the way that we express love for God, who has done everything and provided everything for us, 
is to walk in obedience, to be like that child who will hold on to that string without any question and remain yoked with their parent. Just as we remain yoked with Jesus Christ. He says, take my yoke upon you for my burden is light. It's easy. It's not hard. It's not burdensome. One more reference here in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, I'm going to begin in verse 5, and we're going to jump back up to verse 1. He says, for we, we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. In other words, you and I who are in Christ, we are looking forward to, we expect, and we have this hope. And that hope as defined by Scripture in Hebrews chapter 11 is something that is certain. It's not like saying, I hope we can have ice cream on the way home. There's a certainty of it happening. So we look forward to, we have this hope. We, through the Spirit, wait for the hope, the certainty of righteousness by faith. Now, the only part we're waiting for is to see it in its complete and final form, if you will. Right? We <laughs> this is going to be a hokey illustration, but stick with me, okay? I grew up in the 90s. Dragon Ball Z. We all we know about Dragon Ball Z. It's, it's dumb. It's not that dumb, okay? <laughs> but you have... Goku, I'm going to get the names wrong because it's been a long time. Goku, the, anyway, he's some alien guy. He's got a monkey tail. It's about all I remember. But there's all these forms that you go through as you progress in your martial arts training and all these things and you fight people and you find Dragon Balls and whatever else happens. There are these forms, these different forms, and I don't remember what they're called. One has blonde hair, one has blue hair, and Maybe there's a red-haired one, but they're all increasingly more powerful, of course, because that's the way it should work in a 1990s cartoon. You and I, as believers, in some respect, have forms. For lack of any better illustration, and what we're looking forward to is that final form when we are manifest in God's very presence no longer corrupted by the world that is around us and the sin that we encounter in this creation, whether in us or around us. We trust that because God has declared us to be righteous, because he justified us, and in that singular act of declaration and exchange of righteousness, that when we get to that state, we will be righteous. That the declaration of God and our experience will be one and the same. That's what we look forward to and hope. And so I want to go back to verse 1 in Galatians chapter 5. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. We're going to take the leading of God. We're going to take what he has given and what he's revealed to us, his standard, his ways, his principles from the word of God. And that's going to be our standard. That's where we're going to walk and operate. Jesus said it's not burdensome for his people to walk in obedience. And, and all we mean by this is that as we stand in liberty, we have now the freedom to serve him in every capacity. 
that there is no other obligation, that we seek first his kingdom, as we talked about a few weeks ago, being those worshipers who would lay down everything, even our very lives, to serve him. We're going to stand in the liberty that God has given us. We're going to stand fast and unmovable in that liberty. Not burdening ourselves down in a yoke of bondage, in the sense of obligation, so to speak, but in a reciprocation of love, in trust, walking hand in hand with the Lord because we believe that this is what he has for us. And when he changes direction, we will yield and submit ourselves to that change in direction. When he says it's time to leave the playground and it's time to go do the harder things, we'll follow him in those things. Without question and without regard for what we may be leaving behind, knowing that all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose, so that he might conform us into the image of his son. Israel is being conformed. And they're going about it the hard way. You and I have the opportunity by faith to go about it the easy way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word this morning. We praise you, uh, Lord, that you have given us such clear uh, and, and understandable instruction. And I pray, Lord, for your grace for everyone here that we might uh, walk in that truth, that we might serve you acceptably that we might understand the certainty of your declaration of our righteousness in Jesus Christ and not be entangled with all kinds of things that are outside of what you have clearly revealed to us. Lord, help us to be sensitive and yielded to the correction that you have for those messengers that you may send, whether they be in your word, whether they be through fellowship with other believers, with that iron that sharpens iron, Lord. Help us to be receptive to that soft-hearted, not stiff-necked like your people Israel. Lord, as we have opportunity this morning to worship, to sing praise and adoration to who you are, I, I ask, Lord, that it would be honoring to you. The offering of our lips for what that, for, uh, of what is inside of our hearts. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we can pray and that we give thanks. Amen.